I'm Luke. I'm John. What are we doing today? You cannot see, man. There's nothing for me to see. I'm trying to help you, slew man. Why have you passed me a sausage on a fork? So you can jab it at me during the theme song. Oh, right, I see. It's time for kids' drama on Cracking TV. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the commissioner. John, thanks for coming in. I've asked you to pitch me some children's dramas that will fill my slot. This is something I feel very passionately about, as you'll see as we go on. Okay. But I'm going to get cracking with one that you'll remember extremely well. Yep. Grange Hill. The classic. Absolutely, the classic. So this began in 1978, the year that we were both born. Indeed. It was created by Phil Redmond, who was a TV writer, and of course, as we know, he would go on to create Brookside. He started pitching Grange Hill when he was 25 years old, taking it around various broadcasters, and then two years later, he was pitching a comedy show at The Beeb, which he didn't manage to get commissioned, but he mentioned this idea for a school drama to executive producer for children's drama Anna Home, who it so happened was looking for a kid's show about school, and so she commissioned it. And he was so young. He based it on his time at St. Kevin's Comprehensive School in Kirby, where he was just one year above my dad, funnily enough. Did your dad know him at all? No, I don't think so. I don't think gripper Phil Redmond was going around <laughs> demanding lunch money from my dad and then uh, rolling him down the corridor if he refused to pay up. <laughs> Although it was based on this school in Kirby, Liverpool, it was actually set for the first couple of decades in a comprehensive school in London. In the borough of Northam, I think. That's right. And in that very first episode in 1978, it starts on the first day of term and we meet some characters who would go on to be in the show for several years. Tucker Jenkins, who was played by Todd Carty, his mate Benny Green and Trisha Yates. They're all there right from the start. The episode is very of its time, both in terms of the style of TV and in terms of what school life was like. I mean, a lot has changed over the last 40 years. It's a bit jarring, some of the references. Right. And also, as I say, just the style of TV. So it's an incredibly slow opening. For six or seven minutes, we see multiple characters waking up, having breakfast, walking to school, being driven to school, catching the bus. You just wouldn't do that. You just get on with it. In this day and age, absolutely not. So many scenes that a modern director would think are unnecessary because they're not propelling the story. Yeah. But what I will say is even watching it now, it really builds atmosphere. What you get is almost a horror movie style sense of foreboding (laughs) where people are starting a new school and everyone and everything seems big and terrifying. And if you think of yourself as an 11 year old going to senior school for the first time, that is what it feels like. Absolutely. And then we do make it to the school and we see naughty Tucker Jenkins. He's firing elastic bands at the back of Trisha Yates's head. He gets caught in assembly by Mr. Frosty Foster, who gives him a clip around the head. Wouldn't do that Forces straight back into the 70s, yeah. Two kids go through the stuff of literal nightmares. A girl called Anne Wilson is late for her very first day at school. And then when she gets there, some mean older girls spin a sign around and send her in the wrong direction. So she completely misses the assembly where she was supposed to find out which class she was in. Oh dear. Horrifying, right? Yeah. Tucker Jenkins is is at that assembly, but they call out all the names and send the kids off to class. And at the end, he's still standing there. Oh no. While all the other kids go to their classes and a teacher asks him if he's sure he's supposed to be at that school. (laughs) How did that happen? How would you cope with that as an 11-year-old? An administrative error, but just so horrible, so frightening. Bad enough now as an adult. Yes, absolutely horrible. And that's the thing, it sort of has a sense, that first episode of, oh God, school is so terrifying. Mm. Maybe that becomes the theme throughout the whole of Grange Hill. School is scary. Horrible things do happen to you there. But the kids have good humour. They have good friendships and they find a way through it. 
And I think rather than giving an idealized sense of what school life is like, that's probably quite a positive message to put out to kids. Ultimately saying, I suppose you'll get through this. (laughs) Exactly, you'll find a way through. Right from the start, some of the classic elements are introduced. So the opening credits. Oh, I mean, they're they're iconic and they ran for years and years. I mean, what we would have been watching 10 years later was still those same opening credits. Let's describe them a little bit. It's in the style of a comic book, kids in school. We see a kid missing the bus on the way to school. We see somebody swimming. We see a fight in the playground. And crucially, we see kids eating their lunch when a sausage flies in on a fork. That sausage on a fork is one of the most classic moments in any opening titles, isn't it? Absolutely. And, of course, the classic Grange Hill theme tune. Yes. Uh, Of course, we've discussed this before. It wasn't written for that show, but indeed was also the theme tune for the ITV daytime game show, Give Us a Clue. Only the other day I heard somebody saying, and I haven't verified this, that it's also used in a 1970s porn movie. (laughs) I think that might be true. But, yeah, I mean, so weird that two TV shows at more or less the same time had the same theme tune as each other on different channels and completely different sorts of programmes. Yeah. I mean, that's library music for you. You Composers would write this music and they'd publish it and then producers would pick it. Yeah. And in this particular case, it's Alan Hawkshaw and Chicken Man. And I'm still waiting for the point from the uh, quiz in the other episode. (laughs) For now, we'll forever be associated with Grange Hill, of course. One of the things that's really notable about Grange Hill is that the kids are really horrible to each other. Yeah. In in the way that kids are horrible to each other, there's a lot about it which is a real reflection of what it feels like to be between the ages of 11 and 18. No, absolutely. For the first few years, Tucker Jenkins was definitely the breakout star of the show. Yes. Later, when he was too old to attend Grange Hill, they spun him off into his own TV show, Tucker's Luck. Well, they realised that he was just too much of a star, too much to let go. Absolutely. The next generation on, so a couple of years after the show started, is when you get the characters who I think for a lot of people are the iconic lineup. Yeah. Roland, the overweight kid who was very nice but was horribly bullied. Yeah. And there was Gripper Stepson who was terrifying and was Roland's main tormentor yeah horrible everyone was happy when he got expelled yes absolutely a little bit later there was the female school bully Amelda Davis who was also terrifying yeah she was awful I'll never forget when she put fiberglass down Ziggy's back that was horrible yeah she was a real nasty piece of work I once helped a mate lag their ceiling and I made sure I used extra thick gloves because I've been terrified of fiberglass ever since it scarred you psychologically even as it scarred Ziggy's back exactly Obviously, the main storyline in the first 10 years of Grange Hill that we should talk about is the heroin storyline. Yes. Where the character of Zamo got hooked on smack. Yeah. It's obviously of its time. It was the drug of the day, I guess. We see Zamo early on in the series, and he's just constantly trying to borrow money from his friends. Mm. He's constantly pulling small scams on people, but we don't really know why. It hasn't been revealed that he's on drugs yet. Exactly right. And as the series progresses, you're like, why is this kid who was really nice last year started being so selfish? That's a key point of the plotline, isn't it? They've picked a character who was loved. Yeah, and he'd established strong relationships. He had a girlfriend who really cared about him. He had a best friend who really cared about him. That best friend pops up as an actor in one of the shows we're going to talk about later. There's a clue. Zamo was prepared to lie and cheat and do anything to take money from these people. Yeah. It all comes to a head and the school find out and his mum finds out and they try to keep him off the heroin. But then his lying just gets worse and worse. He's constantly convincing people that he's beaten the drugs, but then he's sneaking off to take them again. Eventually he's confronted and his girlfriend Jackie finds heroin hidden in his calculator, which she then throws all over the floor. And everyone assumes I'm on the street to find drugs. Everyone takes it for granted I'm the one who's lying. My mum calling the law. And you, after all I told you this morning. And you don't believe me either, do you? My best mate, well here. See how much heroin you can find among that lot? Satisfied? Or do you want me to strip right off? Don't fiddle with that, it's broken. What can I do? Yeah, well just don't fiddle with it, alright? Out of the way, Kev, just calm down. I won't tell you again, move! Give it all right. So why are you off, Godslay? You proved it to me, remember? McGuire. 
It's done in really quite a scary way. Yeah, Zamo desperately scrabbling around on the floor trying to pick up his heroine is very harrowing. But there's no judgment of Zamo. The perspective of the show is this young lad got into something that he shouldn't have done, and it's unfortunate. But it's a health crisis rather than a moral crisis, and I think that's really well handled. And he comes back afterwards, and he's clean, and he hasn't been judged. It was an unfortunate thing that happened. Yeah, exactly right. That led into the Just Say No campaign, where we had the cast of Grange Hill singing that terrible song. Oh, Just Say No to the single. I mean, come on, (laughs) jeez. And with a very naive message of abstinence, which has been proven time and again to be totally ineffective. Just Say No is rather oversimplifying the issue. Yeah, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And after the last episode, there was a Drugs Watch special hosted by John Craven and Nick Ross, encouraging kids to just say no. That led to the cast of Grainchill becoming part of Nancy Reagan's anti-drugs campaign. Crazy, isn't it, that you have a little show in the UK and they all go off to the White House. Now, according to some of those child stars, they smuggled drugs into America with them to take recreationally while they were there. (laughs) I don't know if that's actually true, but it's amusing. You do kind of have to be high in order to listen to that song. (laughs) Can you imagine if you've got to perform it? Perhaps it's the only way they could actually get through the engagement. Just say no. No. Just say no. Just say no. No. Just say no. It was very cost-cutter kids from fame, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So much as I'm pitching Grange Hill as a great kids drama, I'm not pitching Just Say No as a great song. Good. My era was a little bit later. I was aware of Grange Hill through that era, but I was not the target audience for it until I was about nine years old in 1988. So that would have been series 11 when I really got into Grange Hill. Right. And the main kids by now were Ziggy, who was a cheeky Scouse character who'd sort of come in as the next generation Tucker Jenkins, really. Yeah, everyone loves Ziggy, right? Ziggy was fantastic. And obviously I felt a special affinity for him as a fellow Liverpudlian. There was Robbie, who was Ziggy's mate. Gonch, who was the lanky ginger kid who always had get-rich schemes going on. He was funny. He was excellent, yeah. There was Justine Dean, who I was in love with. Georgina Hayes, who I was also in love with. (laughs) There was the young burglar, Tegs. Sean McGuire. Yeah, who's still got a very successful career to this day. Yeah. Danny Kendall, who was this really cool rebel kid who just did what he wanted. Yes. All the other kids were scared of him. He wasn't a bully, but nobody would mess with Danny Kendall. You know, he'd just go around the back of the bins and smoke a cigarette. Or if he didn't like a class, he'd just get up and walk out. Yeah. It was an amazing sort of sense of what would happen if a kid realised that there's nothing that any school discipline can really do to harm them. (laughs) Danny just embodied that. He was just so cool. He was literally just screw it and do what he wants. Exactly right. Very talented artist, but otherwise Mm. not interested in school. And of course, he designed the updated school badge. Inadvertently, because he designed it as the front cover of the school magazine. Other characters, Trevor Cleaver, Vince Savage, they were a couple of sort of dunderheaded buffoons. Not quite bullies. They weren't quite bullies, but they would push you around if they wanted to. Yeah. Mrs. McCluskey, who was the saintly head teacher. Were you in love with her? I wasn't in love with her, but she was very nice. <laughs> Mr. Bronson, who was terrifying, horrible, very old-fashioned, set in his ways, and obviously also the same actor who played Hitler in the Indiana Jones movies. Yes. And it was a similar sort of personification. <laughs> and you must have been scared of him when you were watching as an year-old right oh absolutely you worried that all the teachers you would then encounter at secondary school would be just like him yeah we had one of those who i remember to this day we all did but luckily they're not all like him even within grange hill the other teachers don't approve of his methods at all no. and will challenge him on it and of course the other thing about bronson a very prominent toupee exactly yes some very memorable scenes with his wig coming off yes He'd been almost bullying a character called Ant Jones. Yes. A lot of it came out of sort of misunderstandings between the two of them, but there was a sense that this teacher was harassing this particular pupil. Definitely. The year after that, Grange Hill came up with the brilliant idea of putting the terrifying force of Mr. Bronson in direct conflict with the don't-give-a-shit Danny Kendall. Mm. The way the antagonism between those two played out was absolutely gripping. Kendall! Yeah? Almost in time for registration, I see. So what are you complaining about? I understand you have had an interesting conversation with Mrs. McCluskey. Maybe. Some teachers are worth talking to. You should be listening, not talking. We've worked out a contract. Contract? Which I'm prepared to stick to. 
The rules are what you should stick to, boy. The same rules for everyone. Not everyone's the same. School is not a restaurant where you may pick and choose from a menu. No, and just stuff it down your throat till you're sick of it. You should I be... I agreed a... with Mrs. McCluskey I wouldn't be late. So if you'll excuse me, sir. You have not defeated me, Kendall! What you say doesn't matter anymore. This leads to Danny stealing Mr. Bronson's car, and then, in a very shocking scene, Ziggy, Robbie and Gonch find the car, with Danny dead in the back. Hey, boys, look. That's just Bronson's car we found. Look, Danny's in it. He's asleep, isn't he? Hey, Danny. Danny. Do you think he's all right? Well, he ain't moving, is he? I think we'd better get help. He's lying there, dead, eyes open. Yeah. Although actually, I think in one shot, his eyes are closed. A little, <laughs> right, little a bit, bit of continuity. continuity issue. Very shocking moment. There's no way they would do that on kids' no. TV now, right? Show the dead body. No, absolutely not. And for a while, it was sort of set up as Mr. Bronson had thought he had driven him to it. Yes, but it turned out Danny had a brain hemorrhage, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was definitely my era. I loved those characters, particularly loved Ziggy. Some years after that, in 1996, I found out that my friend's sister had kissed Ziggy in the Cavern nightclub in Liverpool. Wow. And I was so incredibly excited. That is quite stereotypically Scouse, that it A, involves Ziggy, (laughs) and B, involves the Cavern. Yeah, good point. A couple of months after that, I was on a lad's holiday in Benidorm. We'd been thrown out of our hotel for going in the pool after hours. So we were walking the streets of Benidorm in our swimming costumes. And uh, an older Scouse lad was like, he's all right there, lads. We were talking to him. And then my mate went, that's Ziggy Greaves. And I was like, it's not Ziggy Greaves. And it, it bloody was Ziggy Greaves. And he was helping us hatch a plan, like something from The Great Escape, to uh, sneak back into the hotel. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I was absolutely thrilled to have that interaction with him. Did he get you back in? Didn't actually work. But nonetheless, it was, uh, you know, it was a lovely moment. And yeah, I just met him that one time, but he was everything you would hope he would be. Oh, that's a brilliant story. It's no surprise that the 1980s version of Grange Hill was so good and so successful. They had real talent working, you know, on both sides of the camera. I'm not saying every actor was fantastic. There are some performances which are very ropey. They were only 11. (laughs) They were probably filming at great speed. Yeah. A lot of content was poured out every year. In between filming, they still had to do their schoolwork. They were chaperoned. There are rules about the number of hours that these kids are allowed to work. Of course. And so you don't have them on set for very long. Yeah, and that's why I guess you need a reasonably large cast so you can keep moving between storylines. Yeah, absolutely. But they had some great talent behind the camera as well. Script editor around that era was Anthony Mingala, who worked on the series for several years during the 1980s, and he later won an Academy Award for Best Director for the film The English Patient in 1996. Goes on to good things then. Definitely. Then in the 1990s, Do you remember this? It got a new theme tune and a new title sequence. Yeah. I thought that was a real shame. It was. I mean, it's not as if it's a terrible theme tune, but it's no Chicken Man. That alternative theme actually lasted longer than Chicken Man. That's amazing. They were clearly trying to relaunch the show. Do you think there was a bit of all this really dark stuff that happened before? We're moving on from it? That might be right, but if so, I'm not sure it was the right direction. They did continue to have some sensationalist stories. For example, Robbie getting involved in a hooligan firm. They hadn't yet softened it or, or taken it to a lower age market quite at that point. Right, right. In 2003, Phil Redmond, who had created the show... His production company took over production of the show. They were called Mm. Mersey TV at the time. Yeah. And they moved production to Liverpool on the same site where they made Hollyoaks and some of Brookside. Then over the years, it became a bit weird. They'd never said the school has moved to a different part of the country because schools don't do that, right? (laughs) They don't just literally move from London to Liverpool. No, but sort of gradually over time, the sense that it was in London started to fade away and the sense that it was actually in Liverpool started Mm. to increase, which I I don't like that. You've got to stay true to the core of the show. Yeah, you can represent lots of different people in London. It is literally a global city. They could have sort of kept the core of the show and changed things up a bit. Exactly, it's just absurd. And then, to be honest, it became even more absurd. In 2007, BBC Children's ordered major changes to Grange Hill so that it fitted in with their new requirement that all programmes under the CBBC banner had to appeal to an audience age 12 and under, Mm. which was a bit younger than the traditional age group for Grange Hill. Now, as you say, we were watching Grange Hill when we were eight or nine years old. But? One of the reasons you liked it is because it felt like it was pitched at people who were much older. 
child. And once they Absolutely. pitched it at eight to nine year olds, it becomes a lot less attractive, I think. No, totally. Instead of being focused on the school, they began to focus it on the Grange, which was the school's multimedia learning center. Makes you want to vomit just saying it. <laughs> they moved the emphasis to much younger characters, not just senior school kids, but like year six kids who were coming in to use the Grange from primary school. They made the storylines a lot lighter. They introduced fantasy sequences. It was a completely different show than it had been in its heyday 20 years earlier. That's just crap. Yes, and therefore it just died out, and a year later, in 2008, it was cancelled. It finished with the character Togger Johnson, considering giving up school. Togger, eh? His uncle convinces him to stay in school, that uncle being none other than Tucker Jenkins. You know, when I started Grain Show, comprehensives were new. If it hadn't been for this place, I'd have been written off. How's you mean? The Swatty kids. They were sent to grammar school. Everyone else was sent off to secondary moderns. To where? It's where you got told that you wouldn't amount to much. Grain chill was for everyone. Because it makes me so angry. If kids like you can't go here, where can they go, eh? That's the great thing about this place. You can be anything that you want to be. Every year is a fresh start. Every year is a clean sheet. Clean sheet. And that's what you ought to tell them. Tucker Jenkins says Grain Chill is for everyone. Well, yeah, it is, and it should still be going to this day. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's a real shame that it was cancelled. If you have a show and it's aimed at secondary school kids and it reflects secondary school life, that's a format that could run forever. Kids are always going to want to watch their own experience reflected on TV, I think. Kids are always going to go to school. Yeah, don't make it too sensationalist. Make it true to life. Obviously, you can't have an infinite number of storylines for a show that runs decade after decade, but that doesn't matter. You can repeat storylines because your audience will constantly refresh anyway as people grow out of it. You just need to keep the characters fresh and up to date. Absolutely. Why would someone who is 11 today not want to watch a gritty drama in the way that we did when we were 11? Exactly. As long as it was well written and well acted and well directed, then I I absolutely think that they would. Emma Reeves, who is a writer for shows on CBBC now, has said she thinks it's a shame that there isn't a place where you can tell the sorts of storylines that Grain Chill used to tell in the 80s. She said, you certainly couldn't tell the Zamo storyline on CBBC. Not only can they not show characters who take drugs, they can't even reference drugs at all in those programmes now. That's just crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. So, obviously, I am Ziggy. Well, hang on. Why are you Ziggy? Why are you automatically the charismatic scouser? Uh, I think that answers itself. But I've prepared a little personality quiz to uh, see which character from Grange Hill you are. Okay. First question. Mm. The kid you are bullying has failed to bring in the 75p you charge him each day. Right. Do you, A, put on your American football helmet and chase him around the playground? Right. B, make him roll along the corridor floor while you kick him? Yeah. Or do you, C, steal his trousers while he's swimming and hang them out of the window for all to see? I wouldn't do any of those things, obviously. C, because it's the one with least confrontation. C, okay, noted. Someone offers you a lovely bit of heroin. Nice. Do you A, chase the dragon and get a smack on the nose? B, sell it onto the first years as your latest money-making wheeze? (laughs) Or C, just say no? Probably the character I like is the one with the money-making wheeze, but I would just say no. Okay. Finally, you've always gone to school in London, but suddenly you go to school in Liverpool and loads of your mates have inexplicably disappeared. (laughs) And it's not really a school anymore. It's a multimedia centre. Yes. Do you, A, become a masked skateboarding superhero campaigning for an end to the school's ban on skateboarding? Yeah. B, chase an escaped puppy that's causing chaos? Mm. Or C, blah, blah, who fucking cares? It's all gone to (laughs) shit now. Well, I mean, obviously C. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to run that through the computer. Mm. You are Mrs. McCluskey. Oh my god. How come we're not Ziggy and Gonch? It's gone through the computer, this is science. Hmm. So that's Grange Hill. Yes. What have you got next? My next pitch is Biker Grove. Why I, man? So this began in 1989. Yep. Set in a youth club in Newcastle. Yep. 1989 was the year that I started secondary school, so I was the prime audience for this starting. I know you were just a little bit behind. Yes. Biker Grove was originally devised and written by Adele Rose. She was the longest serving scriptwriter for Coronation Street. She wrote 457 scripts for Corrie over a period of 37 years, starting in 1961. Bloody hell. And she co-created Biker Grove with executive producer Andrea Wanfor, who also created The Tube, another big Geordie show. Yeah. And she was integral to the birth of The Word and The Big Breakfast. Cool. Between these two women, they were basically behind all of the TV I watched in the 90s. 
Wow, yeah. Neither of them is as well known as Phil Redmond. I mean, that's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, they should be household names. They should. The central storyline of the first three series of Biker Grove was the character of London teenager Julie Warner, who was struggling to fit in and adjust to life in working-class Newcastle, and her relationship with the rebellious Martin Gill Gillespie. And we knew that he was rebellious because he wore a leather jacket. That is the sign of rebellion, isn't it? Tucker had one. I've got one. I mean, you're the very definition of a young rebel. Yeah. Other early characters included the youth club leader, Jeff, with his very impressive facial hair. Oh, yes. Spoilt brat, Donna. Donna's best friend, Nicola Dobson, who was played by Jill Halfpenny, who's obviously still all over TV all the time now. Yeah, and would go on to win Strictly. Yep. And little Duncan, played by Declan Donnelly. Who? Not yet joined by his mate, PJ. Right. The early breakout character was Spuggy, who was a red-haired girl with a lot of attitude. Yeah. And a lot of the characters lived in a foster home with Lou Gallagher looking after them. She was in the show throughout its whole run. And children having that sort of upbringing in a foster home was not commonly seen on TV before then. You didn't see that at all. It's good that it was expanding out and showing different things. Exactly, yeah. Different sorts of upbringings. Yeah. The theme tune to Biker Grove. Ooh. Biker. Biker. Ooh. Well, let's say it's less iconic than Grange Hills. Yes. But by the 90s, Grange Hill had gone with its bland new theme. I think the thing that was iconic, the actual titles themselves, I mean, the characters bouncing up into Kids the jumping into the air and then freezing in a yeah. photograph and then dropping away and being replaced by other kids. Yeah, that was cool. Oh, In general, I think it overtook Grange Hill as being the BBC's most exciting youth drama. It had its finger more on the pulse of what it felt like to be a preteen and a teenager in the 90s. Yeah, fair enough. Definitely had some sensationalist storylines. Definitely. Biker Grove's equivalent to Zamo on Smack is PJ being blinded in a paintball accident, right? Yeah. That was the absolute talk of the playground. It was played for horror, you know, reaction scenes, cutaways... It's in his eyes. Look at his eyes. Shut up, man. Jeff, look at his eyes. Don't stop him, Jeff. All right, Pepper. Jeff. Sorry, son. Just Jeff. relax. He can't see, can he? Call an ambulance, Duncan. He can't see, man. He cannot see, man. It did come across a bit overwrought and a bit yes. silly. When the kids in school were talking about it the next day, they were taking the piss. But I think we were all secretly a little bit horrified by it too. Yeah, you certainly don't expect the beloved character to have such an horrific accident. It was very shocking. There was also a storyline where Duncan joined a cult called Psychandrix. Oh, yes. He was in love with a girl called Leah, and she joined the cult, and so he joined too, but then he got completely brainwashed. Right. In November 1994, Biker Grove featured the first gay kiss on UK children's television. Yeah. This broached the subject of coming out when the character of Noddy Fishwick kissed his close friend Gary Hendricks at the back of a cinema. Yeah. This storyline had been building for a bit where it was sort of implied that Gary might be gay and have a crush on Noddy. But actually... Noddy was actually gay and had a crush on Gary, so Noddy tried to kiss Gary and then Gary reacted very badly. Gary stormed out on Noddy. Yeah, you're sick, man, Noddy, man, you're sick. It caused outrage in the British tabloids. There were calls for the producer Matthew Robinson to be sacked, which seems absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? Completely ridiculous. The BBC did strongly back the storyline and it received a lot of support from gay teenagers and teachers and parents. Because although in that moment when Gary walks out on on Noddy... They obviously follow up the story. It wasn't just that one-off moment. And we see Noddy ultimately being accepted, right? Yeah, that's right. People have a shocked reaction. There's a bit of homophobia, but then people learn and and accept him. Mm. Biker Grove was axed in 2006, having been on for 17 years. Yes. In the show's final episode, the characters discover that they do not exist. (laughs) And they are the creation of unseen characters known as the writers. Right. Who plan to conclude the show and demolish the Grove. Mm. So numerous presents and former Grove members buy enough time for the characters to rewrite the ending so that the club will remain open forever. But ultimately, they fail to stop it being demolished. I mean, it's completed utter bollocks. <laughs> well, imagine if that happened to you. Imagine you discovered you were being controlled by a writer and your will was not your own. Don't be stupid. That would never, ever happen. Oh, really, Lukey? You're a brilliant man, John. Oh, am I? Yes, you are. You're very clever and funny, and you're a much better podcaster than me. Thanks, Luke. That's really nice. What just happened there? No idea what you're talking about. Anyway, cancelling Biker Grove seems to have been part of a strategy to focus on younger viewers. But it seems to me that the BBC let go of 12 to 16-year-olds and has never managed to regain that demographic. 
That's absolutely true, but even among the target age range, nobody's watching CBBC anymore. No, I've got a 12-year-old son. He was a huge fan of CBBS, but he never really got into CBBC, and he certainly hasn't watched that for several years now. And then what's the next step for him in terms of his BBC journey? Is he supposed to go to BBC Three? He's already lost that connection with the BBC. That's just so sad. Also, without Grange Hill and Biker Grove, how are young working-class actors getting a break these days? Eaton will always churn out successful actors, but the authentic working-class voice has largely disappeared from our screens over the last couple of decades. Yeah, Grange Hill and Biker Grove attempted to reflect normal life with normal people. Yeah, many of the kids in Grange Hill and Biker Grove were chosen from open auditions and given a break, and that led to long careers in some cases. The characters of PJ and Duncan went on to have a pop career and then did a little bit of TV presenting under their real names, Ant and Deck. I wonder how that's going. I think they're still plodding away somewhere. They now own the rights to Biker Grove as well as to SMTV Live because they are rich enough to be able to buy up anything that they were on in the past so only they get to control which of their old scenes are shown. Well, we jointly own the rights to this podcast, John. That's right, and we'll make sure that it's uh, preserved. Yes. That's Biker Grove. Biker Grove, along with Grange Hill, they're your first two picks. Yeah. But it's time for me to tell you what I've got. Very interested to see what you've got up your sleeve to compete with those two behemoths. Well, funny you should say bear moth. I've got Dark Season. Okay, spooky. Yeah, so unlike your picks, this is not a long-running show. No. It lasted for six episodes. Right, it better be good then. Yeah. It aired in 1991. Yeah. And it was Russell T. Davis's first drama. Very auspicious then, given what he went on to do. Exactly. He'd been working for BBC Children's in Manchester on shows such as Why Don't You and the comedy show On the Waterfront. Yeah, both very good shows. On the Waterfront being filmed in Liverpool, of course. That's right, yeah. As part of On the Waterfront, he wrote the script for a comedy-dubbed version of the French children's drama series The Flashing Blade. Oh yeah, I remember that. The Flashing Blade had been a sort of swashbuckling TV show in France, and they took the original footage of that and put a comedy dubbing over it so it told a completely different story from the original. Yes. The serious story that the French had written, they completely undermined. It was funny. But while he was at the BBC in Manchester, he took advantage of having access to BBC internal mail and sent his proto-script for Dark Season direct to the now head of children's, Anna Home. Ah, cheeky. Well, it's the way to do it, isn't it? Conveniently, she actually had a gap in her schedule because Tony Robinson had taken a year off from Maid Marian and her Merry Men. So this was like a real live version of Cracking TV then. She had a gap and Russell T Davis was going to fill it. Exactly. She was really impressed with the script, got him to write a series. Amazing. And the series features third-year Marcy and her fifth-year friends Tom and Reed. And Reet is played by Kate Winslet in her first on-screen appearance. Okay, also very auspicious. And yes. actually, this is only, what, six years before Titanic, so her career really takes off soon after this. Absolutely. The story is a company called Abyss Modems, led by the sinister Mr Eldridge, is going to give out, from the kindness of its heart, computers to every child in the school. I love how early 90s that is. The big tech company is called Abyss Modems. Yeah, absolutely. These three kids, though, they're a bit suspicious, and they're right to be because the computers aren't what they seem. They're basically trying to take over people's minds, and with the help of reluctant teacher Miss Maitland, they defeat the evil power of these machines over the course of the first three episodes. Right. The story appeared to conclude after three episodes, and the second batch of three episodes, initially at least, appeared to be a completely different story. Right. The same three protagonist kids are involved, but this time focusing on Miss Pendragon, and she's controlling another computer, Bearmoth, hidden beneath the school. Right. And this Bearmoth machine is trying to take over everybody and everything, and it's revealed in the last episode that Pendragon is actually working for Eldritch, so the whole thing was interconnected all along. I see, very smart. It sort of implied that this evil front that Eldritch and Pendragon are representing are somehow connected to the Nazis. Yeah, there were lots of sort of scary-looking Aryan characters around, weren't there? Yeah. The show, very dark, as the name suggests, really well-written, scary, but exciting at the same time. Okay. Only six episodes, but it, it does show Russell T. Davis has got a very promising career ahead of him. Yeah, so obviously he goes on to revive Doctor Who. He writes Queer as Folk, It's a Sin. Loads of really big, prestigious TV dramas. Yeah, shows that actually have defined their eras. Yeah. 
there's some similarity between Dark Season and Doctor Who. You've got Marcy and then her two assistants, which is a bit like the Doctor and their assistants. But actually, there's been a callback to Dark Season in Doctor Who as well. All right. There's an episode where Rose Tyler was trapped behind a door and her rescuer told her not to go anywhere. A very similar thing happened in Dark Season where Reet was trapped and both of them give the same line in reply. Where am I going to go? Ipswich? That's a deep cut, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think he really expected people to remember that from Dark Season or was that just for his own entertainment? Well, probably initially for his own entertainment, but Dark Season's got this cult following and I think there's probably quite an overlap between yeah, yeah, viewers of, of the two shows. And actually, an audio follow-up to Dark Season has just been recorded. They've even got Kate Winslet back, and it's recorded by the company Big Finish Productions, best known for making Doctor Who audio adventures. Big Finish is named after the title of the last episode of the second series of Press Gang. Which we'll talk about later. Thought we might be. Everything's interconnected. Well, there is that connection between Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat. And uh, also, I'm going to talk about Russell T. Davis in a little bit in the context of another show. So yeah, these things are all linked. Yeah. Dark Season, it may only be six episodes, but I think it would be a great addition to the cracking TV schedule. It'll bring a bit of edge, a bit of excitement, and, you know, we're signing up talent early, so who knows what else Russell T. Davis will then produce for our channel. Fair. I mean, you're the commissioner, and if this is a favourite of yours, then it's obviously going to be in with a good chance. It definitely is in with a good chance. But do you want to try with another show? Yeah, sure. Okay, so my next pitch is Children's Ward. So like Biker Grove, this also began in 1989. Big year for children's drama. Actually, you could say it began a year earlier, because do you remember the programme Drama-Rama? I do, yes. It was an anthology series, really, wasn't it? Exactly. It was a different play every week. And each one was made by a different ITV company. That's right. So there'd been an episode of Drama-Rama in 1988 called Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night. Right. That affected was the pilot for what became Children's Ward. Yeah. So Children's Ward was made by Granada. Mm. It was devised by two Coronation Street writers. Parallel with Biker Grove. Exactly. Except these two writers really did go on to become famous. Paul Abbott, who wrote Shameless, Clocking Off, State of Play, he was 26 when he co-created Children's Ward. And Kay Meller, who at the time was writing for Brookside as well as for Coronation Street, she would go on to create Band of Gold, Playing the Field, Fat Friends... And Fat Friends is incidentally the show where Ruth Jones met James Corden, leading to the birth of Gavin and Stacey. Of course. Now, like you said, for Dark Season, your big claim for that show is that it was written by Russell T. Davis. Mm. So I'm just going to throw in here that from 1992 to 1995, he was writing and producing Children's Ward. Yes. The show was filmed in Bolton. So again, getting outside of London, hearing different regional accents, a more working class sort of a show. Children's Ward's got all of those things going on. Yeah. The first episode sets the tone. So there's a pre-credit sequence. The 13-year-old girl called Fiona. She's had an argument with her mum about whether she's allowed to go to an Iron Maiden concert. She runs into the road, is the victim of a hit-and-run driver, so it's all a bit casualty for kids. You play the game of who's going to get hurt here. (laughs) Yes. She gets rushed to South Park General Hospital, where we meet a doctor who looks and sounds exactly like Chris Morris. You told us we were getting a new doctor today. It is now 20 to 6. We've had a new admission, a seven-year-old boy hemorrhaging critically, several minor emergencies, and we are now five hours behind schedule. And do you know what that means to us? It's now time for the weather with Sylvester Stewart. (laughs) I had to do some research into whether this was a bit of acting he did early on in his career, but no, I don't think it was. Shame. Fiona spends much of the season in a coma, overseen by her mother, and our main two characters are two 15-year-olds, Keely and Billy. Billy's played by Tim Vincent, who obviously went on to present Blue Peter. Indeed. There's a bit of swearing, a bit of light swearing anyway in the show, which I find quite surprising with modern sensibilities. You hear dickhead, knobhead and slag. Don't be blue, Peter. (laughs) Nice idea, a children's ward, because you get loads of kids from different ages and different backgrounds being mixed together on the ward. Yes, and it's a good way of getting around the acting hours restrictions we were talking about. You can always have a supply of kids getting ill. Yeah, people coming and going, that's right. Interestingly, we'd also see the personal lives and relationships of the adults, so the doctors, the nurses and the social workers. Because this is the thing, kids are fascinated by adults. If you look at the top 10 programmes watched by kids, it will consistently feature EastEnders. Yes. And it seems that producers used to know that. 
and they bring the spirit of adult soap into kids' drama, but now that's been completely lost. I mean, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, every kid is going to grow up to be an adult, and kids are interested in the world around them. Yeah, and adults are mysterious and strange and fascinating. And yeah, yeah, I mean, kids want to see what kids are doing, but they don't just want to see what kids are doing. No, absolutely not. Between 1995 and 1998, they renamed Children's Ward to The Ward. Did they have a multimedia learning centre? <laughs> it changed back to Children's Ward for a couple of years before it was finally axed in 2000. Do you think it had run its course? I think probably yes. I guess it had been going for 11 years by then, and there probably is a limit on how much you can do in that setting. Although again, I think like I said with Grange Hill, I wouldn't worry about repeating storylines because your audience has grown up and moved on. Well, that's true. There were lots of familiar household names who got their starts in Children's Ward. So Tim Vincent. Yeah. Will Meller. Yeah. Danny Dyer. Thanks. <laughs> Ralph Little. Yeah. Maxine Peake. Wonderful. Stephen Graham, who's a very lauded actor. Yeah. Quite a list of credits, isn't it? It's not bad at all. Also, lots of people who went on to be in Coronation Street got their starts in that show. Yeah. It's funny, it's not as fondly remembered as Grange Hill and Biker Grove, or indeed the next show that I'm going to pitch. Why do you think that is? I really don't know. I mean, it doesn't have an iconic moment. It doesn't have a, he cannot see man, or mm. Zamo got a smack on the nose. Mm. It didn't have a breakout character that, you know, everybody could name. It didn't have Ziggy Greaves or no, true. PJ and Duncan. Maybe it just didn't cut through. Maybe it just wasn't as strong as the others. But I think it's probably misremembered as being quite a childish show. And it wasn't. Yeah. Just like the others, it really did reach and push its audience. But I do think it's very good and also sort of quite important in the context of what was happening in TV. So it launched just a bit before the 1990 Broadcasting Act. Mm. And that act did a lot of deregulation. So whilst ITV was still a public service broadcaster, its franchisees were no longer required to act like local commercial versions of the BBC. Yeah. And yet here was Granada producing really high quality drama for kids. And that can't have been a purely commercial decision. Definitely that suggests not. to me that the public service ethos was really deep in Granada's DNA. And even when they weren't required to behave that way anymore, they were still going, the BBC is making all this high quality drama for kids. We're not going to be left behind. We're going to go one further and one better all the time. And both the BBC and ITV were going, whatever range of content is available to adults should also be available to kids. Yeah. Obviously, the 1990 Broadcasting Act didn't immediately get rid of the requirement for kids' TV. No. But I think you're absolutely right in terms of the particular things they were making. And it is absolutely that thing of friendly competition makes people better. Yeah. The BBC is better because of ITV, and ITV is better because of the BBC. And not everything you do is about ratings. Sometimes no. it's about prestige. Sometimes it's about just doing the right thing, you know, societally. We are so lucky to have the TV that we have. When you look at the range, in the anti-Shirley Bassey catchphrase sense... <laughs> we have got the range. We have got the range. or We certainly had the range. And I think when you talk about the public service ethos being deep in Granada's DNA, their first night on air, they presented a tribute to the BBC. Well, right into the 90s, Granada still acting as this local PSB with this UK-wide reach. Absolutely. And that's Children's Ward. You've got one more pick, although it won't be a surprise after you mentioned it during Dark Season. <laughs> My fourth and final pick is Press Gang. Guess what year this began? Oh, I don't know. 1989? Also 1989. Clearly a boom time for a kid's drama with three of the shows that I'm pitching launching in that year. That's insane. It was produced by Central for ITV. So again, ITV ensuring that kids receive the same breadth of content as adults do. Yeah. Every single episode was written by Stephen Moffat. He went on to create Coupling, the sitcom. Basically the funny version of Friends. <laughs> he replaced Russell T Davis as showrunner on Doctor Who. Yep. And he also created Sherlock with Mark Gattis. Another person with a really good heritage here, and this is where it all started. Yeah, this is where his whole career started. And get on to how it began. It's quite an amazing story. Oh, yes. Stephen Moffat's dad, Bill was a headmaster in Glasgow, and he had this idea for a show about a bunch of kids working on a junior version of a newspaper. Yeah. Bill, whilst he was working in his school, was visited by Harry Seacombe's Highway. Right. So Bill spoke to a producer of Highway and said, I've had this idea for a kids' TV show, what do you think? 
right. And the producer said, oh, I like the idea. Have you got a script? And so Bill Moffat said, oh, I'll get my 25-year-old son, Stephen, to write it. Stephen was an English teacher at the time. Right. And then the producer said it was the best first script that she'd ever read. Wow. Next thing you know, Central Independent Television have agreed to commission her to produce the show. Originally, they thought, we'll shoot it in our studios at Nottingham. Mm. And then they thought, actually, no, this is really good. So we'll give them a £2 million budget. What? Yeah. And they shot it on 16mm film rather than videotape, as many things were being shot in at the time. And they shot it on location. That's insane. You know, you describe that as divine intervention. (laughs) That does not happen. It shows the creative risks that ITV was able to take at this time. Yeah. A very different time in television history. It's not just ITV. I don't think there's any broadcaster today who would take a risk like that. Definitely not. Press Gang was set in the fictional town of Norbridge. Right. And the plot is that a famous journalist has arrived from Fleet Street to edit the local newspaper. Mr. Kerr. Yep. And he sets up a junior version of the paper called the Junior Gazette. And the idea is that will be produced by pupils from the local comprehensive school before and after school hours. Yeah. And bless these kids, they really do put the hours in. In the very first episode, we meet them, it's 8.30am and they've already been working for three hours that morning on the paper. When do they actually sleep? They're very driven. Mm. The central relationship in the show is a sort of will-they-won't-they-love-hate relationship, reminiscent of Moonlighting. Yes. And this is between the editor, Linda, who's very serious, works very hard, really loves the newspaper. She's played by Julia Sawala. She's quite harsh, let's be honest. Yeah, she's acid-tongued, but Mm. she's just trying to get a good product out, isn't she? Well, true. That's like you, when we're producing this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas I'm more like Spike, the delinquent from America who has to work on the paper or he'll be expelled. Yes, you're very close to being expelled. Spike is played by Dexter Fletcher, who really has been on the public consciousness for as long as I can remember. He was a little kid called Babyface in the Bugsy Malone movie. Yeah. He was in Press Gang, and in both of those he played American characters. I was quite surprised to find that he himself is not American. Yeah. When he popped up as the temporary host on Games Master for one season. People thought on Games Master he was taking the piss with his accent. Pretending to be Cockney. Yeah. And then he pops up as a Cockney again in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yeah. But these days, of course, he makes a fortune with his niche of directing expensive biopics about 70s rock stars. Yeah. Spike's mate at the paper is Fraz, played by Maloki Christie, who also played Zamo's best mate in Grange Hill. Callback. Other characters in Press Gang included the very sweet guy but unlucky in love, Kenny, who once said he's only partially been on a date in that he went, but the girl didn't. Oh. It wasn't that he was stood up, it was that he didn't ask her. Oh no, poor Kenny. (laughs) And another character was the Thatcherite spiv shitbag Colin. (laughs) But very funny Colin. Very funny character, yes. He's like Arthur Daly, isn't he? Yeah, he's like a junior Arthur Daly, yeah, or a little bit Del Boy. He bought thousands of defects ping pong balls half ping pong balls how many of them well they make them in two halves you see and they always have a few defective ones left over how many hundred thousand are you telling me colin that you have spent gazette money on a hundred thousand defective half ping pong balls it was a bargain look we're getting in on the ground floor here it's an investment it's a whole new concept in balls he sold them as pings. <laughs> and people bought them. It's ridiculous. The Linda and Spike love-hate relationship story arc, that runs throughout the series. Yes. But most of the episodes feature self-contained stories, or they might go over two episodes, but for the most part, they're pretty self-contained. Yeah, absolutely. Half of the episodes were directed by Bob Spears, whose other credits include Faulty Towers Series 2, Absolutely Fabulous, where, of course, he was reunited with Julia Sawala. Yeah. And Spice World, the movie. Classic bit of British culture. <laughs> Absolutely. Bob Spears, obviously having had that sitcom upbringing, Faulty Towers, but a few other shows before Press Gang as well, I think is really key to the look and feel of the show. Yes, and the rhythm of it. Mm. It's a very funny show with real crackling dialogue that I imagine is probably present on the page, but bringing that to life and getting that rhythm right on screen is no mean feat. You have a joke every few seconds. They have to be perfectly delivered. You get that sort of rhythm that later you would get in top American shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where every line is amusing. Absolutely. There's a bit of a debate as to whether it's a comedy or a comedy drama or a drama with comedy in it. 
I mean, that's Stephen Moffat's career, really. Even on something like Doctor Who, he'll get the humour into it. Yeah, and there's many people who to this day would say Press Gang is the funniest kids' TV show there's ever been. Yeah. Moffat claims that Press Gang had the dirtiest jokes in history. He says, (laughs) we got away with tons of stuff. We nearly got away with a joke about anal sex, but they spotted it at the last minute. Oh, dear. But despite being funny, it didn't shy away from big issues. There was a solvent abuse storyline. There was a child abuse storyline. I think what was interesting about those sorts of storylines is that they don't talk down to the audience. This is a key thing we've talked about throughout this episode. Yeah. But they also use them to develop the characters a bit. The child abuse episode, it was Colin who the kid had confided in. Yeah. Having been the spiv and having not been taken seriously, he basically goes through this crisis of confidence. Why doesn't anybody listen to me? The way they they solve this is to talk about child abuse in the paper. And this is how the kid who's being abused will be able to work out that she can go and speak to someone. And he's saying, you've got to sell the story. You've got to think about what's difficult for her. And he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a big storyline with a gas explosion with Spike being caught in the rubble. That then played into the relationship between him and Linda because, of course, he'd gone through this trauma. He felt guilty because he was with someone who died in it. Yeah, it softened him a bit as a character, didn't it? It did, yes. Press Gang finished in 1993, Mm. so it was nowhere near as long-running as Grange Hill or Baker Grove or Children's Ward. Certainly went longer than Dark Season. Well, yes. (laughs) But it was far more crafted than any of those shows. So the others had soap opera DNA where you would keep churning out the content, whereas this was much more of a crafted, authored piece. 43 episodes, I think. Yeah, so still plenty of episodes, yeah. Not the hundreds of episodes that some of these other shows have run to, but you're, you're exactly right. It's crafted. Yes, it had a tone of voice, it had a single writer, it had a single sense of humour, it had a single set of characters and a single way of doing dialogue. Yeah. I was saying earlier about is it a good commercial decision to spend lots of money on kids' TV? Taking a long-term view, it probably did turn out to be good business to create these training grounds for writers who've Mm. then gone on to dominate adult drama. Definitely. But perhaps it's too tempting to see these shows as a way for actors, writers and directors to learn their trade because that's somewhat denigrated great these shows as excellent and important television in their own right of course it's important in its own right i would go so far as to say that press gang while it was on was one of the funniest one of the best shows on tv for any audience at all it's got that reputation hasn't it that it was one of the best shows on tv definitely Overall, across the five different shows that we've spoken about today, all right, they've all come from the 80s and 90s, right, at their sort of peak. Yeah. And there is a danger that this podcast becomes things were so much better in my day. Don't give away the format, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it wouldn't be true to say things were so much better in our day when we were young. The last few years, we've lived through a golden age of TV content. Yes, it's been driven by the massive investment that the streamers have put in, but the British public service broadcasters have absolutely risen to the challenge and put out some great shows in the last few years. The streamers can do a really good job, right? Netflix can make a brilliant drama set in a British school, as they've shown with sex education. Yeah, the thing that has changed is that shows aren't being made for British kids anymore. Yeah, because no British kid can relate to sex education and go, that's my school experience, right? It's corridors full of lockers, it's lax attitudes to uniform. Yeah. It's basically an American high school transported to the UK. Yeah, so obviously American. So I would say there's still a huge gap in the market for a relatable kids TV drama. Yeah. It has to make business sense to produce it. So I'm not saying every broadcaster should take the risk and splash out loads of cash on it. But I would say the BBC absolutely needs programmes that are going to hook in the licence fee payers of the future. Or if it's not a licence fee in the future, it's however the BBC is paid for, you know, 20 years from now. That audience needs to fall in love with the BBC at a young age like we did, right? Absolutely. And it's obviously not just about self-preservation for the BBC. I mean, it's there to make content for everybody. That shift of CBBC to finish at 12, there is a huge gap. Yeah, it's not like there aren't things that you could interestingly cover. If you brought back Grange Hill or Biker Grove now, what's it like to be a gay teenager these days? Mm. What would a gaunch gardener today be like with his get-rich-quick schemes? You can imagine him being sucked into some multi-layer marketing cult, can't you? Totally, yes. And what's it like to be trans in school now with some teachers affirming your gender identity, others being gender critical? That's something we've never seen on British TV. There's so much ground to be covered that's never been covered, and you could make such an interesting kids' TV show out of it. You really could. 
we've just seen the BBC have brought back Waterloo Road, right? Yes. But that's an adult show. Yeah, an adult show set in a school. I mean, fine, people want to watch it, no problem at all. But it's not the same as Grange Hill giving the kids perspective. No, it's not the same. The BBC has recently produced a drama called Phoenix Rise, which is aimed at kids and families and is about teenagers in Coventry who've been excluded and are being given one more chance at education. And I haven't seen that yet, so maybe it does exactly what I'm calling for. But you've got this great old brand. Just use it. Bring back Grange Hill. Where would you put Grange Hill, though? I mean, it's not CBBC in the way it's currently configured. Obviously, iPlayer, but why not put kids content on BBC One? What was wrong with that anyway? I think you make some very good points, and you've absolutely convinced me that we need to have a kids' drama on cracking TV. The question is, though, are you the person who should produce it? Well, let's find out. Before I make my decision, I should just ask you some questions to help me decide if you are a worthy producer. Okay. I should warn you, I think the questions this week are quite hard. So we'll start with Grange Hill. Now, what was Grange Hill originally going to be called? Later, the name was used for the school in Brookside. Is it Grange Park? Correct. Well done. Let's ask you a Biker Grove question. Now, we talked about PJ and Duncan, but what was the name of PJ and Duncan's first album? Psych. Correct. Yes. Um, Children's Ward. The first series of Children's Ward featured a hospital radio DJ, but who provided the voice of that DJ? Was it Ross King? Wow. It is Ross King. You didn't need the clue, which was that he's now the LA correspondent for Good Morning Britain. I once got his autograph at the St. Helens show. (laughs) And finally, Press Gang. In the Siege episode of Press Gang, which future Saturday morning presenter played the part of a TV reporter? So this episode would have been on sometime in the early 90s, and this person goes on after that to present Saturday morning TV. Correct. Gabby Roslin? No, I'm afraid not. Go on, who was it? Emma Forbes. Oh, okay. Well, that's incredible. You've got three out of four. I'm pleased with that. I'm not. (laughs) So you've proven you could be a producer of kids' drama, but we've got to decide if you get the commission. I feel really passionately about this, more so than any cracking TV episode we've done so far. I would love to produce one of these shows. Maybe you'll get to. You've brought me Grange Hill, Biker Grove, Children's Ward and Press Gang. Very strong, isn't it? There's some very strong shows there, but Dark Season, it may only have been six episodes, but it's a very strong show. Yeah, I'm very scared that you're not going to give me this commission, I have to say. As you know, if I give you the commission, you will get to go off and make the programme. Yeah. But if I don't, you'll have to leave the Cracking TV office in disgrace. Yeah. It's time for me to make my decision. Your first show was Grange Hill, and you started big. Yep. 30 years it lasted, 20 years of them were good. I know you've not pitched it for its later years, and I'm happy to ignore that. Thank you. The concept should be timeless. All kids go to school. Everybody goes through some degree of experience, and that should be reflected on TV. Grange Hill's had some incredible storylines researching this show i've got hooked on watching series nine of grange hill when samo got hooked on smack (laughs) then you talked about biker grove clearly a show that sort of picked up the baton for dealing with issues yep some very good storylines and huge legacy there as well i think i'm going to rule it out early though not because it isn't a good show biker Ooh. If I'm picking between Grange Hill and Biker Grove, I was definitely a Grange Hill kid, watched it for years and years, so I would pick Grange Hill over Biker Grove. Okay, well if you know that right from the off, you might as well rule Biker Grove out now, I suppose. Children's Ward. Now, Children's Ward obviously was the next show by Russell T Davis after Dark Season. It ran for a lot of episodes, loads of people came through... But do you really remember many of the plots of that show? I mean, no. I will cheerfully admit it's not an all-time classic. So I'm going to rule it out. Okay. Now, your last show was Press Gang. Yes. It is up there with any drama. It is really, really well written. It's really funny. Absolutely brilliant show. So you've got Grange Hill and Press Gang still in the running. Okay. Dark Season, very exciting, a lot of suspense. It was only one series, but it was a very good series. 
look, I could try and maintain Jeopardy right until the very end and claim that it's going to be Dark Season versus Grange Hill or Dark Season versus Press Gang. But let's be honest, it's going to be Grange Hill or Press Gang. Yes, I'm definitely getting a commission. You could still screw it up if you go a bit cheeky, so you still watch yourself. (laughs) Okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. Grange Hill or Press Gang is a really, really difficult choice. I would really like to bend the rules and have both of them. But there is only room for one. Tucker or Spike would bend the rules. That's true. So, so hard. But I think given what we've been talking about throughout this episode, and given what we want to achieve with kids' drama, I'm going to have to give it to Grange Hill. Oh, that's a good decision, Mr Commissioner. You won't regret it. You've got another show in. Well done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can't wait to start producing it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Very interesting to see how you deal with drugs in the 2020s. (laughs) I'll show you exactly how I deal with drugs. Well, now you've got the commission, we can find out. (laughs) That's the school bell. Time we were out of here. Cracking TV was produced and presented by me, John Ziggy Greaves Furlong, and him, Luke Gonch Gardner Sluman. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog Factual Entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV.